around 750 million people live on the European continent. So what about it? What will its future look like? Will there ever be a United States of Europe? I am Paolo De Stilo, and you're listening to Europe Matters. It is with immense gratitude I share with you the completion of our first season of interviews. This would have been impossible without the support you have shown us through our crowdfunding and Patreon page. In the past year, I have talked to people from all over Europe, both in person and online. We even had Noam Chomsky joining in from across the Atlantic. So, in case you have missed any of these conversations, we have created this mashup episode to bring to you the highlights of each interview. Before you skim through this interlude, make sure to stick till the end as I will tell you more about our upcoming season. Tonight I'm joined by Gilberto Morichat. Where do we start? Where is there to start? There's so many things to say. Yeah, so I think we can start a little bit actually back in time. In 2014, you moved... Way in the past. Way in the past. You moved actually to, to Europe. Yeah. Because you're from? I'm from Curaçao. It's a beautiful island in the Caribbean, next to Aruba in front of Venezuela, just so you can get the idea. And I came here to start my studies, so I chose to do um, the study of Bestuurskunde, or public administration, but in Dutch. And the reason why I chose my study is because I believe that you can create the conditions, allow people to change and become better through policymaking. So I was kind of baptized into this new uh, magical european world and and how was your first impression of this magical european world i mean you know i think when when you move to another country you try at least to prepare yourself so so the year before i was like just reading like hundreds of books i think it was like a hundred books literally a hundred books but also recognizing that you know there is going to be a lot of new things and that i need to have an open mind to be able to receive that there's a lot of opportunity, right? Right, right. Europe is very much, especially in the Netherlands, everything is interconnected and you get places to places fast and there's always an opportunity um, everywhere. It is my great honor to introduce you to the Dutch poet and writer, Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer. Both tourism and immigration are um, different effects of globalization. And there is, of course, a very grim contrast between the two. And I became very acutely aware of that uh, in real life when I was uh, in Malta. Because we all know that Malta is the other Lampedusa, no? Uh, it's also uh, a destination of many refugees from Africa. But the surprising thing was that uh, while I was there in Malta, in Valletta, I didn't see one black person. And that is very strange. And then I researched a bit and um, I discovered that it's also very much part of deliberate Maltese policy. The refugees that arrive there are, uh, are kept hidden because they don't want to damage the tourism. And, uh, of course, that's, that's very uh, paradoxical, no? In order not to scare wealthy white travelers that are looking for a past, they have to expel the poor black travelers who are looking for a future. <laughs> 
You say that this is a colonial attitude. Yes, perhaps it is. I think it's most of all it's short-sightedness. Because when we talk about immigration, uh, I think one of the lessons that history teaches us is that immigration can never be stopped. And in the case of the uh, African refugees trying to come to Europe, if you see the risks they are willing to take, if you see that they are easily willing to risk their lives to get here, you understand something of the desperation and they are not stopped by, by anything. So I don't think it's very fruitful to, to think about ways of, of stopping them. I think it's about time to think in a different way. If they are coming, perhaps it's better to think about ways in which, in which they can be useful members of our society, you know? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome, everybody. Today, I'm joined by Valerie Sternberg-Irvani and Rainier van Lanschot, the co-presidents of Volt Europa the national elites that are driving the politics that affect us as individual citizens. And I think this is simply not fair and this is not democratic and this is not how it should be. And this is why I do believe we need a democratic Europe, whatever you call it, European Republic. But I also think that, and this is what Volt has always said from the beginning, we we are not for revolution, we are for reform. And we want to take everyone with us. And it is a it is a long-term project that we are in in it for, for the marathon and to achieve that in decades and not in the next few months. I was actually talking about this with a friend and he asked me, like, how's the development gone in how you view what you're trying to achieve with Volt? And the interesting thing is, like, the COVID crisis has definitely made more clear for me that the structural changes and the systemic changes that we propose for the EU are necessary. At the same time, what has really changed over the past four years is the conviction I have that we as a movement are actually also the ones capable of realizing those ideals and implementing them and making it happen. I thought to myself, okay, I really like the idea of a pan-European movement. I think it's it's an idea that I fully support, but you guys have no money, you guys have no uh, experience, you have no famous people that you can use to spread the message around. So I was quite cynical about whether this could be achieved or not. But I thought at the same time, this is so important that I'm going to try and help them out. (music) 
I'm joined today by Marta Pardavi, who is co-chair of the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. In the, the late 90s, Hungary was such a promising place when it comes to a democracy and human rights and the whole region. And we saw this um, progress also be recognized in the 2004-2007 accession of the Central Eastern European countries to the EU. It is quite sad, but also upsetting, outrageous what is happening in many of these countries. But we have to also see how, while Poland and Hungary tend to be the most talked about when it comes to democratic backsliding and fundamental rights violations and rule of law threats on a, on a sort of systematic and systemic level, this is not uh, happening only in the so-called east of the EU. In this sense, I think it's really great that the European Commission is doing an annual monitoring exercise of these issues across all the 27 EU member states. But it is certainly the role of citizens and their groups to be concerned most with what is going on in their surroundings, in their local environment, in their national settings. And so whatever the EU institutions are doing is crucial because it can strengthen processes, it can assist progress, ideally, but it will always be up to citizens to ensure that their own rights, those of their communities, and those of their fellow neighbors are being respected. And so in this sense, I think civil society has an extremely important role to play. And this is exactly why it is facing threats and pressures particularly in Hungary, as you pointed out. So today I'm joined by Dragos Christian. He is a Romanian stand-up comedian who started his comedy journey in the wonderful country of Singapore. So I think the interesting thing about being Romanian in Asia is that nobody knows what Romania is, right? So then they automatically yeah, default yeah. you to European, which was great because, uh, you know, moving from Romania to other parts of Europe, they automatically default you to Romanian, <laughs> European, you know what I mean? So it was an interesting perspective that they would view me as European. And then obviously I kind of started leaning into that a bit more. I started explaining to them you know, the, 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 the position of Romania within the European Union, I guess, at that time, especially if it was like 2004, uh, 2000, I, my time in Asia was like 2014, 2016. I started 2016. Uh, it was still about like 10 years, nine years since Romania joined the European Union. So there were still, for example, in the UK restrictions, the Romanians joining and working and, and so on and so forth. And there were still some tensions with uh, France, Italy. You know, there's some degree of resistance to, you know, Romanian immigration, I guess. So I was kind of using that as an analogy. So one of my jokes would be like Romania is kind of like the Mexico of Europe. Today I'm joined by Nini Tsiklauri, an artist, author, and she's a European activist who grew up in Hungary, Georgia, and Germany. People are ready for it, are ready for it with their hearts. They want democracy, they want the rule of law, they want human rights and the European values. They're ready to die for them. And I, I saw it at the Rose Revolution, I saw it in 2008, I saw it also at the Euromaidan, uh, where many Georgians also risked uh, their lives or gave their lives for, for the European values. So this is the most important topic. Also in schools, in the kindergarten, when you're born, 
it's the number one topic at the table when you're eating with your family. <laughs> so somehow I've got it always with me. And yeah, but the system is the problem and uh, the, the politics and uh, how the leaders make politics and for whom they make politics. That's also the, a big question because uh, my generation has the sentiment that the leaders that came into politics since 2012 are mainly doing politics for themselves, but not for the people. And this has to change. And so my biggest hope for my generation is to one day communicate with each other because we we are all around the world um, and also all around Europe. Uh, my younger colleagues from Georgia <laughs> who are also studying, who are also fighting for the same goal. Nearly everyone is studying political science or international relations or international development just because of they want to go back one day and make the dream come true that the country is able to actually live with the European values and respect them and cherish them so that the European Union sees that we're ready. <laughs> uh, we gained the independence in the early 90s uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed. There are many movements on the streets, bloody movements. Actually, there is 20% of the country still occupied from Russian troops. Part of my family is also on the territory. So uh, it's also very hard for me emotionally to think about this topic because I know that I will never be able to visit them for a lifetime <laughs> until this conflict can be uh, resolved, but I don't see any solution in the next years for this frozen conflict. And I wonder how, how long it will go on. Today, I'm joined by a very, very special guest, which is an honor to have here on Europe Matters. Uh, he's calling in from Tucson, Arizona. It's incredible that he accepted this invitation to talk about very, very important topics like what we learned from the pandemic, what the future of Europe will look like and how we can save humankind. These very high topics and very important topics uh, will be discussed together with the one and only Noam Chomsky. My feeling is that Brexit, the departure of Britain from the European Union, will severely harm Britain. But it's also harming the European Union. It's taking out of the European Union a major economy, a major force for potential European unification. Uh, I think this will turn Britain into even more of, of a subordinate state to the United States than it has been already. We're already seeing the early signs of harm to Britain. It'll also weaken Europe, but it does open the possibility for Europe to take a more independent stance without the role of Britain as a sort of proxy of the United States, which it was. So there are possibilities, but there are very few signs of this developing in Europe, some but not much. So we're facing very serious problems worldwide. There are solutions to them. Ukraine, China, global warming, pandemic. There are solutions, but you have to take them. They're not going to work by themselves. And that requires the kinds of dedication among the population, kinds of 
education and understanding, the kinds of statesmanship, which unfortunately are lacking, can be overcome, but there's not much time. Today, I'm joined by Valerie Thatcher, who walks for Europe, but also through Europe. In 2019, she did uh, 700 kilometers from Lyon to Brussels. And that experience shaped her to write a book, Une Marche pour l'Europe, translated A Walk for Europe. Good point about uh, information is that the media coverage has developed much about, I feel, I see that, about the EU, what does the EU. And that is a good point, that people have more information. But one thing that I wanted to share with the people is, um, of course, they have lots of rights and freedoms, thanks to the EU, thanks to democracy, thanks to the rule of law. We have lots of uh, good things, but we have a huge responsibility uh, as a citizen in the EU. And one of these responsibilities is to get informed, to have various sources of information. Even if the media coverage is weak, we have to make efforts. We have a responsibility um, as a citizen to have an open mind, to learn, to keep a critical mind, to vote, but to vote with knowledge, with understanding, and to vote not only for oneself in a selfish way, but to vote thinking that you are voting for your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, for all the society. You have a way to take responsibility for everything you're doing. Welcome, everybody. Today, I'm joined by Alberto Alemanno. Uh, we've had uh, Alberto uh, last year in our clubhouse rooms. Well, democracy is not something static, right? It's, it's, a, it's a sum of practices that take place in a particular historical moment and they keep evolving. So if you look at democracy through that lens, it's pretty clear that current practices of representative democracy are no longer able to do their job. That means to represent people in an inclusive way so that government will respond to those desiderata, to those preferences. So we need to reinvent democracy. And Europe is very well placed to become what Calypso, Nicolaitis, and I have recently called uh, uh, citizens' Europe power. This idea that Europe has to become a power a strategic power, thanks to the citizens' input. And the way to do so is to allow Europe to experiment much more new democratic practices, including, but not exclusively, deliberative democracy, meaning having citizens who are randomly selected, ordinary citizens, for a short period of time through sortition to provide advice to policymakers. I think this based on the current literature, we know could have a disrupting effect on the political class. It will increase accountability on what decision makers do and will also create much more responsiveness between the system of government and citizens' expectation. But there are many other approaches, as you know, uh, or those who had the chance to read my work around citizen lobbying. Um, we also have the possibility as citizens to provide input into day-to-day decision-making by filing petitions, taking part to consultations, writing letters uh, to our political leaders, trying to meet them. And citizen lobbying together with citizens' assembly can together 
uh, improve the state of, of democracy. Um, there is also one that I could also mention, which is called participatory budgeting. So why don't we get more citizens involved in the decision on how we allocate and use uh, public funds? So Next Generation EU is this mega uh, project uh, uh, emerging out of the COVID pandemic, and citizens have no voice whatsoever. It was a very much top-down process in which the national plan, which each government to put forward in order to get a green light from the Commission and the Council, were really much done in, in the ministries of, of, of European capitals. Why not to open up to citizens at least a percentage of those funds in the same way the city of Paris, the city of Berlin, the city of Madrid are doing now, where 20-30% of the annual budget is allocated based on the preferences the citizens who show up uh, are, are giving. So we need more cycle path, we need more schools, uh, we, we need to fix um, some infrastructure that exists in, in, in a particular city. These approaches are probably the future of, of democracy and Europe can become a champion of those by setting the standard for many other regions of the world. They still look at Europe as a champion despite all its limitations of democratic dynamics. Welcome, everybody. Today, I'm joined by Alina Carlsen and Tess de Roy, co-founders of This is Gendered, the feminist encyclopedia. I had a, a teacher of mine in high school, uh, not the best teacher in many ways, but uh, he taught me one thing that I've taken with me from then, and that's that everything in the world is political. From where you decide to place, you know, the handicapped entrance at a building, um, to you know who are allowed to vote, who pays taxes, um, but like the everyday stuff, the bigger things. Um, and we were discussing this, like how not everyone see things as political and how it's even possible to be apolitical in 2020. Um, so it came from there. We both had this like feminist gendered view of the world and we kind of sparked each other curiosity of like, how far can we take that idea? We noticed that the both of us, when we were having conversations about gender, about feminism, but also about other forms of discrimination, we were talking about it at quite an academic and abstract level. Um, both, you know, coming from university um, and then sort of entering, for instance, the work field, as Alina says in her internship. And there was just like a mismatch between the way in which we talked about these these subjects and the way that other people wanted to approach them, which was much more tangible and much more concrete and much more about the everyday impacts. So we thought, okay, we need to sort of like break down that abstract knowledge and start to discuss about how gender and feminism affect us in our daily lives. Our idea is indeed to be a collaborative platform, um, a place where people can share their experience with in a gendered world and with a gendered world. And talking about the criteria, um, we like explicitly also want to give uh, space to stories that are not necessarily research-based, people are also definitely allowed to speak from personal experience because we think that is very valid as well and often very telling about the world we live in. Um, and we have an amazing team of editors that edit um, all incoming pieces and do make sure that facts are checked and that there are no, no false claims and that they're nuanced enough um, and inclusive enough. So 
I would say any piece is welcome, um, but we re we read it carefully. Yeah, and if I if I can add like one of these like important feminist principles is that the personal is also political. So in the encyclopedia, you'll see some entries being based on statistics, on um, you know research and that sort of stuff. And then you also have entries that are just based on one single event, uh, one single encounter. Um, but we think that it's important to include that as well because it's just as telling. And that's also how kind of feminist theory and knowledge and research came about was kind of mapping these individual experiences. Um, so that's also something you'll encounter. You'll see people writing from, uh, from kind of like their own perspective. Today I'm joined by Anas Hanafi Dali, is a member of the Global Shapers community of the World Economic Forum and is a fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, for which he leads uh, different projects. He is based in Turin and he's currently specializing in space law. He's also a member of the Space Law and Policy Group of the Space Generation Advisory Council. You mentioned before the International Space Station and how we are dealing with Russia into our cooperation agreement that we have into the International Space Station. So, for example, th this agreement is very important because we have to rescue astronauts. We will not ask them before anything their citizenship or their passport. So I, I think this is very important also for humankind to, to think broadly and think as a human species and not just as a member or part of certain states. We have to rebuild a uh, new regulation altogether uh, because if not, uh, we will we will be uh, like subjugated by this national space legislation and all the states will try to create uh, their national space legislation and bring them to the UN and discuss it for uh, years and years and decades. So we have to be responsible and I think our generation will be into the future, uh, thinking about the future of space exploration in a, in a manner that can help us keeping the world peacefully, keeping also the world sustainable and environmental and friendly. So we will see, we will see with the satellite what we can do. But uh, I think uh, into the regulation that we're having right now, it's very hard because right now, if you tear down a satellite, might mean that we are starting a new war. So we have to keep very 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 sensitive into this uh this point and we have also to try to use the space for uh, for peaceful ways and for peaceful meaning and not for for the war let us know if you enjoyed our first season by leaving a review on apple Podcasts, spotify or any other podcast streaming platform with your help together with the Europe Matters team, I will be able to bring to you our next season, in which we will talk about the war in Ukraine, the possible ways forward, information war, and how both the East and the West are fighting with their propaganda machines. Hopefully, this will answer part of our quest of understanding how the future of Europe will look like and whether we will see the formation of a United States of Europe. Please consider becoming a patron on patreon.com or by making a one-time donation to our crowdfunding on gofundme.com. 
follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.